next guest this afternoon is David Evans, Executive Chairman and Founder of Evans & Partners, a specialist equity investment firm that offers extensive investment solutions to private high net worth individuals and institutional clients. Founded in 2007, Evans & Partners provides private wealth, capital markets, asset management, research and execution capabilities across Australian equities, fixed interest and global equities. Outside of his involvement in Evans & Partners, David is also a non-executive director of Seven West Media, a member of the Victorian Police's Corporate Advisory Group and chairman of Cricket Australia's Investment Committee. David, pleasure having you on this afternoon. Thanks, Thanks for your time. Let's start with the current economic situation. What's your reading on the economy at the moment? Pretty buoyant. Um, I think it's sector by sector. I think what has happened over the course of the last 12 or so months is we've thrown an enormous amount of stimulus at the Australian economy and worldwide economies. So the trick for investment advisors like us is to work out what's real and what's not. Um, so because there's been so many sugar hits as far as the stimulus packages that have been put into the Australian economy and some of that gets backed out over the course of the next few months, uh, it's important to sort of analyse what all that means. I think over the next 12 months I think we'll be fine and I think the buoyancy that we're seeing now will probably continue. Certainly with JobKeeper coming off that probably frees up labour markets because labour has been incredibly tight, particularly in some sectors. So my view is that, uh, that the next 12 months is, is pretty buoyant time for the Australian economy but some pretty big speed, speed humps coming up. And reflecting on the performance of the ASX 200 of the past year, over the past year, it's obviously crashed heavily uh, in late March or mid, mid to late March last year and now it's sitting around 300 points below where it was pre-pandemic. How would you evaluate the past 12 months and what are the key learnings you've taken away from this period? I think the key learnings are to be uh, in good quality companies with, with, that are liquid, um, that are, have quality dynamic management. But even saying that, I think you need to take a step back and, and understand what has been going on for the best part of the last five or six years, and that is this transformation that's occurring with the impact of this disruption. And what I mean by that is that uh, the technology revolution, if you like, which has only been accelerated by COVID, that has actually meant that it, things have happened a lot quicker, particularly with things like payments, um, the cashless society that we're now in. So I think some industries have been totally uh, disrupted. Um, you know, clearly a, an industry that, that I'm a part of, uh, given my board seat at Seven West Media, free-to-air television's obviously been disrupted by the likes of Facebook and Google. Uh, but these businesses are forced to reinvent themselves. So it's that transition that we've seen. And again, analysts like ourselves and advisors like ourselves have got to understand what is long-term structural change and what uh, are companies um, changing, adapting to what's gone on quick enough um, and working out the companies that won't survive. What opportunities have the Evans & Partners team identified for investment recently and which sectors do you think are offering the greatest value? Well, I think our, our focus clearly over the last couple of years has been technology and healthcare and those two sectors have done very well for our clients. So the technology call probably was about four or five years ago when we set up what we call the Evans & Partners Global Disruption Fund, which is a, uh, a highly liquid um, sphere of, uh, of about 40 names that we cover globally uh, that 
the mandate is that they have to be disrupting an industry and having an impact on on uh, on the industry that they're disrupting. And that that has been a great call and a call that's worked very well for our clients. Healthcare has obviously uh, been another good call given what has happened with the pandemic and the race now for things like the vaccine, but not just the vaccine, living in a in a world now where, where health is much more of a focus for, uh, for the inhabitants. Generally speaking, what are the major risks or headwinds that you're seeing over the short to medium term? Well, I think that the biggest issue, as I alluded to before, is working out what happens when the sugar hits stop. And um, so we are in a perpetual low interest rate, short term low, low interest rate environment. Now, any time that there's a hint that those short rates might go up, markets react um, very poorly to that news. So at the moment, there's so much stimulus. We calculate that there's about $85 billion in Australia that's uh, on household balance sheets ready to come into the market as a result of the stimulus. Um, and it's about a similar number for businesses, Australian businesses as well. So again, what does that look like? What, is the, what do the economies look like with that gone? Um, and is this just dragging um, demand forward? And so that's the, that's the analysis we have to do. So the biggest challenge, I think, once the stimulus comes off and all the debt is added up, how do we, how do we repay the debt? What is the impact for inflation? And what is the impact as far as the interest rate uh, philosophy to, for central banks to, uh, uh, to execute and roll out over the coming years? Has your investment mandate changed as a result of the events of last year in any way, do you think? I think we are more focused on liquidity. Um, so companies that, that are heavily traded, uh, not being exposed to companies that um, trade by appointment on the market, so, uh, and being exposed to companies that are alive to what is going on in that, uh, that uh, technology revolution I mentioned before. Let's explore your background. You were born in Melbourne to parents Ron and Andrea Evans. Talk to me about your upbringing and some of your fondest memories. Well, I had a very uh, a wonderful childhood. Um, my, my father was uh, an industrial chemist to start with. He studied at Melbourne University, and, um, but was a, obviously a well-renowned footballer. Um, and then mum and dad went to Perth for dad's, uh, dad's football. That's when I, I was born in Perth. And um, dad worked his way up uh, from very humble beginnings to a very successful career at Spotless, which uh, he ran with a man called Brian Brian Blythe, and they were wonderful partners together and um, provided a, a great childhood for uh, myself, my sister and brother. And mum played a, an amazing role. Dad had a, dad had a incredibly, um, he was a workaholic, arduous role developing the business and had uh, a, a situation where he was away from home a lot. And mum really brought us up and brought us up extremely well. And we wanted for nothing and uh, we were very, a very happy family. Your father, Ron, as you mentioned there, was a successful sportsman and later businessman, the great Ron Evans. What are the, the key learnings or takeaways that you learned from him? Well, he was a man of, uh, of great integrity, uh, and his integrity meant everything to him. So you, you shook hands with Ron Evans and you knew that you were, it was a contract and that he would stand by the relationship and he would stand by what, what uh, he put his word to. So. You know, the grounding that I got through Dad was effectively my best friend. You know, Dad and I were incredibly close. We used to play golf together um, pretty much every second week. Um, we'd travel together, going on golf trips. Uh, so, you know, he, I got a lot of his philosophy on business and life 
through those trips and the chats we used to have. So, you know, Dad passed away at age 67, um, which is way too young, and and um, it's just a, a really sad thing that uh, his grandchildren, um, who some of uh, uh, two of my children, will remember him um, and very fondly, but the rest of the uh, of the wider uh, family probably won't remember, which is a tragedy given just how much um, he gave us as um, my two siblings and I. Um, wonderful grounding for, for, for life. Following high school, you enrolled in a Bachelor of Economics degree at Monash University. Where did the interest in economics come from, do you think? Oh, well, definitely from my father. Uh, the commercial aspect of life always interest, interested me at a young age. And, um, and I was... I was also a risk taker in that, not a risk taker as in, you know, punting or anything like that, but love the idea of coming up with an idea and even when people said that's not going to work, basically researching that out and going and executing it and making it work. And um, I absolutely got that from my father. Uh, and that really has you know, been my philosophy on, on life is take a risk, understand the risk, measure the risk, and, uh, and manage the risk. Post-university, you had an interesting pathway into becoming a stockbroker. Take me through the story of how your father introduced you to friends who worked in a range of different disciplines, and I believe you, uh, you met a stockbroker and yeah. that sort of took your fancy. Yeah, it was, it was it's exactly how it happened. Um, so I was at university and really not knowing, like a lot of kids that age, what they wanted to do. And, my father did a great thing. He said, well, here's six of my friends. Um, they're across every different uh, industry that you, I think you might be interested in, from media to banking to investment banking, stockbroking. And uh, this, uh, this guy, Ozzy Porter, who um, uh, is now passed, but uh, I, I met him one morning and in his offices at Roach Tilly Grice and walked away an hour later thinking, this is what I wanted to do. It sounded pretty good to me. <laughs> What, what was it that attracted you to stockbroking? Was it the a diversity of clients? Was it the dynamism of, of stockbroking or, or was it something else? That's a good question. Um, I think if I look back across my career, I'd say it was defi definitely the ability to work with a family, establish a relationship, give them some good quality advice and protect and grow their, their nest egg. That, to me, is one of life's great privileges and um, I think back on all the clients that I've met, dealt with, advised, I've made so many wonderful friendships and got to meet some terrific people um, across all walks of life, young, old, and got to share with them their experiences around how they were successful and it might be from doctors, lawyers, um, uh, one of my early clients was uh, uh, someone that was in construction and um, learned a lot from him. So they've shaped the fabric of my career just by meeting them, hearing their stories, working with them in protecting and, and growing their wealth and obviously getting to know their family and the next generation coming through, which, which is also a privilege. Let's explore your career. You commenced your career at JB Weir and Sons, I think in your mid-twenties. What was your first role within the business and what were your first impressions of being a stockbroker? Uh, well, I was, I was recruited uh, not f long after finishing university at Monash and I uh, was recruited as a private client advisor. Uh, and it was, it was a really difficult time for markets because markets were, it was the 
coming out of um, uh, the 87 crash and um, in the early 90s when you know, markets were reasonably buoyant but they were, they were, they were testing and, and you needed to be on your game as far as what to invest in and, and the volumes were tiny compared to the volumes we have today. But what happened is uh, privatisation happened. So the Commonwealth Bank got, um, uh, got listed. Um, Qantas was also privatised at the time. Um, there was a big flood. Woolworths was one, Telstra was another one. So all this happened within the space of about three or four years. And JB Weir were at the forefront of that. We were joint lead managers on most of those deals. So all of a sudden, Weir's became uh, first port of call for private uh, investors who are wanting a stockbroking relationship because we were on most of those big deals. So I was a young guy who, who didn't have much of a client base but um, was in a firm that was dominating at the time and uh, I, got, I got really lucky. It was a, years back in the early 90s was, uh, was a good place to be and, and, um, and it was not only a good place to be but it was a very good experience for clients. As you've touched on there as a business, JB Weir, particularly when it was independent, was an Australian icon. Talk to me about the business pre-merger and, and why it was so attractive to investors and clients. Well, I think uh, it was very well run. Uh, Bruce Teal and Terry Campbell uh, were a very, very good combination um, in the way that they ran the business, the way they established a culture that, uh, that was very protective of clients and their needs, but also very protective of staff as well. And people woke up every morning wanting to come to work to work for JB Weir and the leadership. And that really had a huge impact on me uh, and was later to have a very big impact when I set Evans and Partners up because I wanted a modern interpretation of that, of that culture that was built. And the staff owned the business. It was, it was a partnership. It was a, it was a corporate structure, but it was effectively run as a partnership. And it was... Um, very successful, not only the private client part of the business, but it was obviously at that time very good and quality corporate deep relationships with corporate Australia, and that was also driving uh, the institutional um, business as well. So, uh, as I said, it was a, in the 90s and uh, the early part of the 2000s. It was a it was a wonderful firm that uh, that really did drive great outcomes for its clients. And then I think in 03 the business merged with Goldman Sachs. To what extent did the merger change the dynamic of the business and what was your role within the business post-merger? Well I was on the board at the time so I was a part of the decision to merge with Goldman um, and, and thought it was the right decision at the time to do that. Uh, Goldman are obviously a you know incredibly powerful and um, well-respected firm in the US and, and globally. So when, uh, when the decision was made by the board to, to merge with Goldman, um, we went into it with eyes wide open and, and it was probably the right decision at the time. The, the corporate and institutional part of the businesses back then was looking for global advice. So borders were opening up, it was the, really the start of globalisation and corporate deals you needed to have a global perspective to advise your clients. So, uh, and that, that, that was the major catalyst for the decision to merge. By 2005, you ran the Merge Businesses Equities Division. Take me through what, what this involved and, and the types of investments that were popular pre-GFC. Well, uh, I was actually commuting. I was, um, I was living in uh, my family in Melbourne, but uh, the institutional business really had to be run out of Sydney. So uh, I went to, to Sydney. I was working four days a week in Sydney and a day a week in Melbourne. It was a 
professionally a fantastic time in my life, but incredibly brutal as far as the hours I was working, the time away from home. But uh, I was incredibly proud of what we did as a firm back then, as far as the the way that we set up our research business. The market was adapting back then really quickly. Um, as I said, it was really the start of globalisation back at that that, uh, that time in the market. So Australian firms were um, were certainly taking a lot in from from their global peers as far as how you run an investment bank. So it looked a lot different then than it was in the 90s and, uh, and the business was changing all the time. So we put through a lot of change very, very quickly. Yeah, there was, there was corporate Australia was very buoyant and pre-GFC it was, uh, Australians were making good money, um, investing wisely and, and Weir's played it and Goldman, Goldman Weir were playing a very big role in that. So then in 2007 you founded Evans and & Partners and we're sitting here today in the boardroom of Evans & Partners. What was the impetus for starting your own business? That's a long and detailed question which, which I could talk for hours on, but I'll give you the short version, version Rob. Back then there was a, a gap in the market I felt for a modern interpretation of the JB Weir model. So uh, privately owned, um, so no... Uh, so independent in nature, independence is a commonly used word, so probably not independent, but no big shareholder from the US or Europe. Uh, it's just that the company is to be owned by, by its employees. And then take, in a passionate and focused way, take to the market something that was highly differentiated from what was going on at the time. Certainly the focus was on making sure that the fees were tax effective and the fees were fair to clients. There was also a focus on making it really focused advice for private clients, so not taking an institutional offering and then tailoring it for a, for a private client. So this was a very much a tailored approach for uh, private wealth clients. And uh, it was incredibly successful from day one. I mean, it, we, we got lucky because the GFC hit at the same time and people say, what a terrible time to start a business, but it wasn't actually because it, it actually gave us the ability, because we had no baggage, to put to the market something that not only learned from the lessons of the GFC, but enabled us to start from a um, almost a zero base and take what we thought was an appropriate portfolio across all asset classes to our clients at a time in the market where things were looking pretty cheap. And, um, and it worked and we got great access to people as well. So all the big global banks were flat out you know, trying to survive and sort of took their eye off the ball looking after their staff and so that we, we had access to some, some great people who wanted to come and work for, work for us. And let's talk about the Evans & Partners business today. What specialties and, and what services do you offer your clients and, and who makes up your client base? Well, the client base is quite varied. Um, the Evans & Partners uh, offering is very much focused on high net worth individuals who are looking to form a relationship with, with advisors that can look across all of the investments. Um, so we will have a view on all asset classes and, and th those views are researched by our own in-house research. So our core competence when we started was, uh, was um, domestic equities, but now we've got really good quality offering now in, in, uh, in global equities. Fixed income, we've built a terrific um, offering now which again is researched across global and, and uh, domestic fixed income, alternative asset classes. So 
It is a very much a balanced approach to investing across all asset classes and that to me is critical in because at the end of the day, you know, all markets, even the volatility of the last 12 months, there'll be one out one asset class that outperforms another. And that's the key, I think, to good quality private client um, advice is is looking at, at, at all spheres of, of, um, of asset classes, not just uh, domestic equities, which I felt at the time, um, back in when we started the business 2007, it was very focused on domestic equities. And how have you navigated the growth of the business from 07 to where we sit here today, 2021, offices in Melbourne and Sydney, I think around 150 odd staff in the Evans and Partners side of the business. How have you navigated that steady growth trajectory? Yeah, we've just got our licence in Hong Kong as well. So the, the business is uh, growing uh, enormously in a very short um, space of time. It, it hasn't been without growing pains. You know, I've made some, some poor decisions along the way. I've made some good decisions. Um, but again, it's been focused on making sure that we have the capacity to look after clients and, and look after clients in a way that they're going to not only pres preserve their wealth, but grow it, and um, and that's not just private clients; that's institutions as well as our corporate clients as well, and as well in our in our funds management business, we've also come up with some thematics like disruption in healthcare that we've felt warranted us to go out and create an offering for a client to get exposure to a thematic like that. So that's probably answers your question around how we construct and manage portfolios and how we. Um, develop the rapport with our clients to enable us to provide the very best advice we can. And you mentioned the global equity side of the business has grown significantly recently. What other sectors within the business or what other divisions within the business have also grown? Oh, well, the, right now it's uh, our, um, our wealth business is growing significantly, but our, but our capital business, which is our advice to institutions and corporates, um, particularly mid and small cap corporates in Australia, is growing very significantly and this is helped by, we merged with uh, Fort Street um, advisors uh, a few years ago now and that's been a very successful merger um, and that that relationship between the Evans and Partners institutional business and the corporate advisory team and indeed the, the wealth uh, advisors as well as the synergies out of that uh, partnership has been fantastic. So that part of our business is growing significantly. Um, I would like to think that uh, there is a real offering now in the market where we can, with post-rule commission, where there's been people exit the retail space, we like to think that we, you know, we could dominate that, dominate that space someday, um, you know, because Australians need quality advice and robo-advice, uh, industry funds play a role and they play a very important role. But I still believe having uh, a person sitting opposite you at a table, giving you, you and your family advice for the future uh, is incredibly important. And I don't think that market get, gets disrupted. What have been the major trends or patterns since 2007 from an investment standpoint? And how have you adapted to these new trends? You mentioned, I think, healthcare more recently, but mm. also technology. What else has sort of grown over that time frame? Well, I think it's, uh, as I said earlier in my answer to your question about um, the last 12 months, I think COVID has really brought forward a lot of uh, decisions to be made on how we run our business as far as where our people sit, how we comply, uh, comply as far as um, you know, our platforms that we set up to give 
our advisors to service our clients and how our clients get um, to see information about their portfolio, that part of the business is getting a lot of focus and traction, so it should. And, and the way that we uh, use those platforms to ensure that we have a good quality relationship with, our, with the, um, the regulator, to ensure that we're meeting uh, our obligations as far as how we face the market. Um, I think that's probably the biggest thing I see in the market that's changing and, and evolving for the better um, as a result of things that have happened, be it COVID, be it the Royal Commission. Um, and that, to me, is, a, is, a, is something that I think we're, we're starting to really get great traction given the changes we've made. Now, no doubt it's a different demographic, but we've seen the explosion of self-trading share applications like Superhero here in Australia and Robin Hood over in the States. Do you have a view on these types of apps, whether it's either of those two or whether it's, say, robo-advice? I won't uh, say to you that I'm an expert, Rob. Uh, I've certainly uh, researched what's happened and watched uh, what's happened, and I think the market integrity is something that needs to be upheld the whole time and I think regulators uh, looking at some case studies that have taken place over the course of the last few months particularly and would be concerned um, because at the end of the day there needs to be protection for the investor and I understand uh, why they happened and why Robin Hood has been so successful and um, the dynamics that caused that to happen but the market integrity is just critical for the movement of capital and, and I, I feel that um, the regulator needs to play a fairly significant role in ensuring that that um, market integrity is kept. How would you evaluate the investment attractiveness of Australia as compared to other countries, particularly in light of the way that Australia has come out of the health and economic consequences of COVID? I think Australia is a, still a reasonably narrow market, I'm talking equities now, um, in that I don't think you get the breadth of um, exposure to thematics like technology, healthcare, that I'd spoke about earlier. So I think you, you, there are certain sectors in the in the world economy you need to go to other markets to get exposure to, and that's why it's so important to have that global offering. That may change. It may not change. I, I worry about um, the ASX going forward because the cost of being listed, the attraction of being listed is you've got to be the right type of company and, and, and the right type of size to be listed. And it's, you know, it's a very important part of our business listing companies and you know, we, we certainly give advice to our, our corporate customers that um, we give advice around size, around the size of shareholder list, um, all that it becomes pretty critical. So. So the ability for the ASX to be any much bigger than what it is now in the short term, uh, I think, is challenging. So therefore, I think there is a, a real opportunity uh, to develop pre-IPO markets and pre-IPO capital, uh, which I think of, it's not, not an opportunity; it's actually happening now. But I think that that's only going to grow and evolve uh, over the course of the next few years. So I think Australia's markets are probably reasonably mature. But I think that pre-IPO market and um, requests for capital pre-IPO is, is, is going to grow very, very quickly. There's been a lot of commentary and speculation around certain technology stocks and how they're overvalued or whether they are overvalued. Are you seeing stocks on the ASX, say, at the moment that are particularly overvalued without naming them, but are you seeing any with any particular sectors that are way overvalued as compared to their revenue numbers? 
I don't think so. I think I'm a great believer that markets pretty much get it right all the time. Um, and when there's an aberration in valuation, that gets, um, that gets shone out pretty quickly. Uh, so I, I think the markets right now are pretty fairly priced. Having said that, as I go back to the answer I gave you with the first question you asked about the outlook for Australia. I think the outlook for Australia looks really good for the next 12 months, given how much money is out there and given where interest rates are. So I actually can't see anything that looks particularly cheap right now. I'd say it's, it all looks reasonably well priced, but it's priced for what I've just, uh, what I've just highlighted about a, a buoyant Australian economy. If, if there's any changes to that, as far as there is, a, there is a change to interest rate policy out of central banks, both here and abroad, then it will be a very serious correction. And, and that, that could dwarf the, uh, the GFC. What are the fundamentals to becoming a, a successful stockbroker? Uh, very good with people. Um, the ability, and I, uh, I look back on a, a, um, a couple of the uh, interviews you, you did uh, uh, over the last couple of days, and there was a, an answer, I think, um, by Mark Liebler, who talked about trust. And uh, I think that was a very good answer, and it, and it, it relates to private wealth in, uh, investment advice as well. You need to have the ability to win and um, uh, win people's trust and, and show your integrity and make people understand that you're in it with them, you're, you're, you're invested in their want to succeed and, and protect and grow their wealth. And that, that is a very, a very important aspect to be a good private client advisor. Second one is you've absolutely got to understand markets. You've got to understand what makes them tick, how to read a balance sheet, how to read a P&L, um, understand the research that's being done by a company like ours and how, how you explain that research to, to the end client. And the ability to relate to people who have a lot of knowledge or don't have a lot of knowledge and be able to, to talk in uh, a dialogue that doesn't intimidate people and breaks it down and exp explains it clearly um, but also understand there are going to be some clients that actually have got a lot of knowledge and, and do want to know the detail. And so it really is a breadth of skills that um, will enable you to, uh, to talk to all different types of people, different types of uh, understanding and knowledge of the way markets work. You sort of touched on it there, but what have you been your biggest learnings throughout your career, whether in uh, business or, or in life? Uh, have good people around you. Um, that would be the, the first one, um, and people that are smarter than you. Uh, and also to make sure you acknowledge those people and what they bring to the equations, and to make sure that those people are challenged and given the opportunity to grow themselves. So that'd be the first one. Um, trust and integrity is, is critical. And if you do make a mistake, own up to it um, and actually show humility uh, that's, that would be critical as well. And the other thing I've learned is that um, it's, uh, it's the long game, not the short game. There's, there's no shortcuts. Um, so the ability to, particularly in building a business, having a long-term outlook and not try and take shortcuts and get there quickly, building blocks and building something really special, whether that's the building of a culture in an organisation or, or the development of your key people, taking the long view, not the short view, um, and therefore people see what you're trying to build and they, they almost 
they come on the journey with you. And I also think the ability to make sure you look back and make sure who is following, um, because I've seen mistakes made where people have built and developed things, have run a million miles an hour, look back and no one's following. And that that is really important to take take a check on not only the people who are working with you, but also the people you're marketing to, the clients. I'd say it's a combination of all that that, that I've learned along the way. Speaking of short games and long games, let's talk about your passion project, Cathedral Lodge. Um, how did that come about? Uh, you've obviously got a, a keen interest in golf, but, but tell us about Cathedral Lodge, where it started and, and where it's at. Yeah, so it is a passion project, but um, my passion project is t turning into be very successful, which uh, I didn't expect to um, for this to be as successful as it has been. It, it all started, you know, if I'm brutally honest, when I was 12 years of age, when I was sort of doodling golf holes, and and then I got um, increasingly interested in doing this when I went to America and visited the great clubs of the world, you know, places like Augusta National, and um, there's a really lovely club in Washington called Chevy Chase Country Club. Some great courses in in the UK as well that were sort of private for families and. And uh, when I brought this property uh, not far from where my wife grew up, um, I thought, wouldn't this be great to <laughs> develop and, and uh, run a golf club? And I kept that to myself because I think I would have been committed had I told anybody at that time. But as I thought more about it, and, and the, the key moment was when I met Greg Norman and, and shared this vision with him. And I just played Alliston, which is a course he'd done for the Packers a few weeks before I met Greg. And, and uh, anyway, I told Greg about it. He said, would you like me to come and have a look at it and, and the property? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. And he just fell in love with the, with the property and the project from day one. He basically um, gave me the confidence to do it. And we worked through it together. We worked out, you know, this was the budget that we had to spend. How, do we, how are we going to make this work with the budget that we had? He sort of shared with me some of the clubs that he respected uh, in his golf travels. So that's sort of how it happened. And, um, um, you know, I obviously researched it um, like any business decision I've made. And I went go back to that, that discussion we had on risk. I knew there was lots of risk there, but I knew that if I could manage the risk and, um, and measure it, that uh, we had something that was, was a gap in the market that, that I felt that Australia uh, would support, and that's exactly what's happened. All the signs are pointing to Greg returning to Australia, so no doubt there'll be plenty of golf games so. between, between the two of you. It'd be great to have him back, it'll be fantastic. <laughs> My final question is, what's next for David Evans and Evans and & Partners? Oh, well, Evans & Partners is, is going really, really well, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm at the sort of the, the back end of my career right now. It's, um, for me, I'm enjoying the ability of promoting and looking after, mentoring the younger people in the firm, um, giving them the benefit of, of my experience and opening up um, you know, my uh, networks of people and, uh, that, that I've looked after over the years. And, and um, so that's the, the fun part for me. I think the firm has got a, an enormous opportunity, and I alluded to it earlier about the fact that there's a lot of um, participants who are exiting uh, wealth management amongst the retail space in Australia. So, um, and we're committed to it, and we're of the 
at the point now where we think by actually resourcing up in that area, there is um, there is an op opportunity for us to take a very significant piece of the market. So I go back to what I said before, I think really good quality advice for individuals who are looking for, um, for some expertise and well-researched uh, investment advice, um, there, there'll always be a market for that. And um, making sure that our principles that we've developed over the last um, 13 odd years of being in existence around quality research, um, access to different um, asset classes and good quality people making those decisions for our clients uh, and working with our clients to get outcomes, that's, that's a recipe for a very successful business. David Evans, it's an absolute pleasure having you on the interview series. Thanks so much for your time. This Thanks time. Rob, enjoyed it.